Hello, this is William Fank, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 11th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before we begin, I would like to thank Bruce and Nancy Bond for a weekend of partying in northwest Georgia. I'm just kidding, right? I'm... I, I'm just being a smartass. We weren't really partying. I was actually doing programs, but that's okay. Tonight we're going to present part four of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And this is subtitled, Salvation is not by legalism. I imagine this program may be even more controversial than what I did two weeks ago entitled The Kingdom of Heaven or The Elections of Men. Many identity Christians profess to keep the laws of God, and for the most part they do, but then they adopt and intermingle a lot of their concepts of right and wrong from the greater society or from their own personal judgment of things transpiring in society, good or bad, whereby they are really not following Yahweh's law in the degree which they imagine. Of course, none of us follow it perfectly, and that is why we, we, why we require the mercy which is found in Christ. But Yahweh's law is much more than just church law. It is a schematic for the coming kingdom of heaven, and Christians should seek to live by it and establish it now. They should base their everyday decisions and their judgments of right and wrong upon God's law first. In our time of punishment, we may be compelled to obey some of the laws of man, But, of course, we should not do so to the point of negating or invalidating the laws of our God. When man and God disagree, we must choose to follow God. I had initially thought to subtitle this segment of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians as Puritanical Phariseeism, or perhaps Pharisaical Puritanism. These titles would be appropriate within the confines of our modern vernacular use of those terms, but they are not really fair to most of the original Puritans or even to at least some of the original Pharisees. At first, the Puritans sought to purify the Church of England of the idolatry and rituals and other things which were considered Catholic, and which have no foundation in Scripture. However, numbers of them, realizing that the established churches could never be reformed, broke from the Anglican Church and established their own churches. Many of these, being persecuted, fled to America or to Holland, and among the first pilgrims were a large number of separatist Puritans. But there were also some non-separating pilgrims, Puritans and others in New England who remained within the Anglican Church. 
In the modern age, Puritans often get blamed for doctrines of asceticism or abstinence, and the early Puritans were also sometimes known as killjoys for that reason. They had advocated so strict a moral life so as to completely prohibit public festivities, play-acting, dancing, and other activities which were considered acceptable within the more mainstream Christian sects. But they did not proscribe things such as wine or beer. Instead, they considered those things as gifts from God which are not to be abused. Nor did they discourage sexual relationships, so long as they were within the lawful bonds of marriage. We would agree, but we would consider marriage and the sexual relationship to be inseparable, unless one of course, is committing fornication or adultery. There's only three choices if you're having sex. You're married, or you're committing fornication, or you're committing adultery. So the Puritans, while they had their faults in other areas, such as the hangings of Quakers, cannot really be blamed for many of the ideas which the larger society now considers to be puritanical. Here we shall see, at least briefly, that asceticism, which promotes abstention from earthly pleasures, is actually much older than the Puritans. Neither were the Pharisees all bad. If they had been all bad, Christ probably would not have been found entering into the houses of certain Pharisees to dine and to teach, as we see, for instance, in Luke chapter 11. The Pharisees are often blamed for a lot of the evils that were really perpetrated by the Sadducees, who were indeed all wicked. But even in the New Testament, one aspect in which Pharisaism is portrayed is that it represented a strict adherence to a particular interpretation of the legal aspects of the laws of God, even to the point where concepts of love and mercy must be laid aside, and for that reason Christ often exposed the Pharisees as hypocrites. The Pharisees focused on legalism and the strict keeping of the rituals and the ordinances in the law, and they overlooked the exhortations to love, mercy, and charity for one's brethren. So the Pharisees would accuse a man who hungered on the Sabbath, and in violation of the law, plucked some grain from the fields, as we see in the account recorded in Luke chapter 6. Likewise, some of the early Puritans had banished Quakers from their communities and executed some of the Quakers who were found in their communities, killing their own brethren simply for having a somewhat different interpretation of Scripture. So those who were once persecuted, persecuted rather quickly became persecutors. And this aspect of what is wrongly called Puritanism 
certainly does exist among identity Christians today, where some have adopted a form of modern Pharisaism or legalism, and they despise those who do not follow along with them. And I've met many of these people in my own journey through Christian identity. I have seen allegedly Christian men break fellowship over Sabbath-keeping, or a lack thereof, or feast-keeping, and even worse, arguments over the calendar. Others are teetotalers, who not only abstain from beer and wine, but who also, and more importantly, refuse to fellowship with those who would gladly enjoy a beer or a bottle of wine. Marijuana use is another major stumbling block for many so-called Christians. And in spite of the fact that our God actually, obviously, gave it to us for a reason, they would break fellowship with anyone that they themselves may consider a pothead. And before I proceed, let me make a confession so that I am not unfairly judged. I personally drink either wine or beer in moderation at least a couple of evenings each week. I do not smoke tobacco or marijuana, although I have in the more recent, in the more remote past, I'm sorry. I have never ingested heroin or any similar drug, but neither do I take prescription medications, nor do I take any over-the-counter medications. I don't even use skin lotion, and I have not seen a medical doctor for any illness in nearly 40 years. I don't say these things to boast, but rather so that I am not accused of justifying myself. I am also drinking coffee during tonight's program, even if the usual choice of beverage is a beer. Let me also state this, that the Jewish-inspired hippie drug culture, which became popular in America in the 1960s, but which existed in Europe and America from at least as early as the 1930s, is evil, and we do not by any means support or condone its concepts. There should be no doubt that it is actually a purposely destructive and Marxist counterculture. However, we have to look at the reality of the situation and assess it to the law of God. Those who abuse substances have existed in every epoch. But that does not mean that the substances themselves should be demonized. We hope to clarify this as we commence with our presentation this evening. Think about this. Yahweh our God made marijuana and ostensibly he also created poppy from which we get opium and, even worse, from which we get heroin. If we believe that God made these things, then we must believe that they are good. Pain is a fact of life. 
Many of us suffer chronic pain. And for those of us who are weak, Yahweh God gave us natural ways to deal with our pain. I have seen many self-righteous identity Christians who would condemn those who smoke marijuana while they themselves think nothing of swallowing over-the-counter man-made pharmaceuticals. Or even worse, they have Oxycontin prescriptions. It is much safer to believe that God made marijuana than to think that he showed someone how to make a liver-destroying acetaminophen for our benefit when it's not beneficial at all. But I've seen men condemn potheads while they themselves have prescriptions for statins. How is this not a form of pharisaical hypocrisy? How is this not idolatry? Let's discuss how this is indeed a form of idolatry. In Proverbs chapter 30, we read that every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put trust, that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. In 2 Kings, chapter 17, we read this, which is a part of the reasons given for the casting off of the children of Israel in the Assyrian captivity. But Yahweh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall you fear, and him shall you worship, and to him shall you do sacrifice. And the statutes, and the ordinances, and the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore, and you shall not fear other gods. Reading these passages, it must be kept in mind how Christ told his followers, If you love me, keep my commandments. He never told them to create new commandments. Anyone who creates his own commandments sets himself up as a god and seeks to impose tyranny upon men. Now the Hebrew word for God also bears the signification of judge. Sometimes it's translated judge in the King James Version. And the Apostle James in chapter 4 of his single epistle warns Christians to speak not evil of one another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that you judge another? So if the law of God judges our brethren for doing wrong, that is one thing. And of course, they will suffer the penalty. But if we ourselves judge our brethren for doing wrong, we make ourselves the judge of our brethren. 
and therefore we make ourselves as God, because only he is rightfully our judge. That is what James is saying there. If the law judges us, that's fine. That's from God. But if we judge each other, contrary to that law, who are we to do that? Do we think we're God? So when we proscribe things which God's law does not proscribe, how are we not practicing idolatry and setting ourselves up as gods? Once we accept the idea that we can prohibit our brethren from things that the law of God does not prohibit, we are adding to the law. The scripture warns us not to add to the law. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God which I commanded you. When Christians agree that, when Christians agree with laws that are not from Yahweh, they agree with men and not with God. When Christians accept and enforce the laws that are not from Yahweh, they agree with men and they agree that men can play God. There may be things which we must do because we live in a state of captivity and punishment since government is a punishment from God. But we should understand that those things are not righteous and that they shall indeed be corrected in the kingdom of heaven. Yahweh made marijuana and Yahweh made poppy. Yahweh made the absolute natural process by which grapes become wine. And while we should not condone the abuse of any of these things, Yahweh made them for good reason. If his law does not prohibit them, neither should we and if we prohibit our brother from marijuana, but we ourselves take an aspirin, or even worse, a synthetic painkiller, how are we not hypocrites? We are worse than hypocrites. Banning something made by God and ingesting a so-called medication made by man, which is sorcery. In the early 20th century in America, a campaign was begun against marijuana. And right around that same time, a similar campaign was begun against alcohol consumption. So we had prohibition. And marijuana was banned, along with several other plants and their derivatives plants which can be grown and refined by people in the privacy of their own homes if they live in an appropriate climate. When we accepted these prohibitions, several cottage industries were destroyed and we as a people became dependent upon industries controlled by capitalist Jews and bankers. The ban on alcohol destroyed small farm distilleries across the nation. 
from which farmers not only fueled their own tractors, but also sold alcohol to others to be used as fuel for automobiles and other equipment. So an entire segment of honest farmers had to stop producing their own fuel or be destroyed for bootlegging. In turn, they were shackled to the oil companies. The Rockefellers, among others, among others have profited tremendously as a result. Thanks, prohibitionists, for being the useful dupes of big oil. When marijuana was banned, along with derivatives of poppy and coca leaf, not only did people lose much of the natural God-given ability to self-medicate for their pain, thereby enriching the Jewish-controlled pharmaceutical companies. But the hemp industry was lost as well. This was not a coincidence. This, this made people mostly dependent upon cotton and synthetic fabrics, and companies such as DuPont had thrived as a result. And they continue to thrive because we agreed to prohibit plants which are given to us by our God. Nylon was developed in the 1930s and polyester from 1941. But synthetic fibers were being manufactured as early as the 1880s. Thanks, pot haters, for being the useful dupes of Big Pharma, Big Cotton, and the Big Chemical Firms. Because of your short-sightedness, we lost one of the more productive small farm cash crops and collection of cottage industries we have ever had, which were all based around hemp and hemp is banned to this day in the United States, even though the hypocritical government lifted the ban during the Second World War. These are only a few examples of how men play God, and the result is the enslavement of us all. Then, eventually, we become accustomed to accepting the enforced status quo as if it were righteous and we despise one another for not following along. But Christians should never judge their brother by the laws of men, and instead they should even pray that men do not oppress their Christian brethren. Neither should we reject our brethren simply because they do something which we may not like, but does not break God's law. To do so would be a sin on our own part. You may not like the pothead, but you can't hate him for it. And most marijuana users are not what we would consider the average pothead. On the surface, it may not seem as if all these things which we have discussed here tonight are directly relevant to this chapter of Paul's epistle. But we would ascertain that they are indeed relevant. Paul is actually addressing several subjects here. He has already discussed the fact that Christians are free from the ordinances of the Old Testament law, which held them in opposition to God. 
And in our last segment of this presentation of Paul's epistle, we discussed that at great length. But on the other hand, as we also discussed at length, Christians being free from the ordinances of the law should voluntarily seek to establish the law, as Paul had taught in his epistle to the Romans, and as Christ had exhorted those who love him to keep his commandments. However, since there is a new priesthood, and the Levitical ceremonial and ritual ordinances are done away with in Christ, Therefore, concerning some things, there are no laws. The ancient ceremonies and ritual ordinances are no longer relevant in society. And therefore, as Christians seek to establish the law, they are not to be judged concerning how they keep the law. The Pharisees had forced men to keep their particular interpretations of the law and Christ exposed them for their hypocrisy and even their lack of knowledge of the scriptures. Therefore, in verse 15 of this chapter, Paul had said that Christ had stripped the sovereignties and authorities which he exposed publicly, triumphing over them in it. And for that reason, Paul continues here in verse 16 by saying, Therefore, no one must judge you in food and in drink, or in respective feast, or new month, or of the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of future things. No one must judge you in food and drink. In food, because, as Paul had explained in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, if one's conscience is not hindered by any belief in idols, because idols are nothing, why should one be concerned about buying his meat from the markets? The Pharisees, the legalists, would want to prevent that. The Judaizers would tell Christians that they couldn't do that. Of course, Paul was discussing food, and not those things which are not considered food by Christians such as swine or shellfish. Likewise, no one must judge you in drink, because if one can moderate his drinking, why should that be a cause of trouble to the intemperate? If one cannot partake moderately, of course one is better off doing without, lest he be consumed in drunkenness. But the intemperate, should not seek to rule over those who have no trouble who have no trouble with moderation themselves or even no care for moderation yahweh will judge the careless discussing this passage at the end of our last presentation we saw that yahweh had rejected the sabbaths and the feasts of the ancient children of Israel because while they had celebrated them at the same time they had forsaken the keeping of the more important portions of his law doing this he said in part bring no more vain oblations incense is an abomination unto me the new moons and sabbaths the calling of assemblies I cannot away with it it is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble unto me. 
I am weary to bear them. So on one hand, if we as Christians do not keep the commandments of God, then keeping the Sabbaths will be of no benefit to us. But on the other hand, since the old Levitical priesthood and the structure of the old kingdom of Israel are now gone, there is no authoritative regulation of these things, and no one should be able to judge Christians as to how or even when they keep the Sabbaths and feasts. As we said in the last segment of our presentation of this epistle, we will repeat here, Paul never persuaded Christians not to keep the Sabbaths and the feasts. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, and throughout the records of his ministry, it is said that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, speaking of the Passover, Paul wrote, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new dough, just as you are unleavened, since also our Passover, Christ, has been sacrificed. Consequently, and this is the important part, we should keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of sloth and wickedness, but with unleavened sincerity and truth. <coughs> Excuse me. So Christians are encouraged to keep the feasts, and they should endeavor to keep the Sabbaths. But since those things were a part of the rituals and ceremonies of the law, and were only a shadow of things to come, as the King James Version has it, then we should never judge our brethren as to how, or even when, they should keep the feasts and the Sabbaths. It is even evident in the Gospel that the Judeans themselves did not agree on a calendar, and we certainly could not keep it, even if we were certain that we had a proper calendar. And that's the end of my quote from our last program. It has been argued that the commandment to keep the Sabbath is one of the original Ten Commandments, and that is true. But even those commandments were given as they were for the purpose of the maintenance of an entire kingdom, which organized its calendar and all of its functions around their keeping. So when the entire kingdom is on the same schedule mandated by the law, it is easy to keep the feasts and the Sabbaths. But the children of Israel still did not keep them properly. So how are Christians able to better keep them today, ruled over by a godless government and at the mercy of godless men? The same circumstance existed in ancient Rome, which did not keep a seven-day calendar or a regular Sabbath cycle, and which had designated days upon which certain business was to be conducted or upon which certain business could not be conducted, and those days were often contrary to the seven-day Sabbath cycle. Early Christians sought to operate independently of the pagan regulations of the Roman government, but they could not do so perfectly. And today many Christians would find it even more difficult to keep the feasts and the Sabbaths with regularity. Christ sought not to regulate men on the Sabbath, but to help 
his brethren and his community. That was what he was found doing everywhere on the Sabbath. The Pharisees hated him for it. But that is the model which Christians should follow today. So, as it is characterized in Luke chapter 13, he asked the Pharisees who had opposed him on the issue of the Sabbath, Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Then, as we see in Luke chapter 14, he added, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightaway pull him out on the Sabbath day? Well, evidently some of them wouldn't. Because in the Dead Sea Scroll, which is known as the Damascus Document, in the scroll identified as 4Q271, in Fragment 5, Column 1, we read, No one, this is the Qumran sect and their own private regulations, peculiar to their sect. No one should help an animal give birth on the Sabbath day. And if it has fallen into a well or into a pit, he should not take it out on the Sabbath. And any living man who falls into a place of water or a well, should no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope or utensil. And that's from the Dead Sea Scroll Study Edition from Martinez and Tigkalar, Volume 1, pages 621 and 623. The Damascus document probably predates the time of the ministry of Christ by only a couple of decades. And it is indicative of at least some of the religious thought in Judea at the time. Agreeing with the attitude that the words of Christ had also attributed to the Pharisees. He embarrassed them by it. So contrary to the prevailing legalism of the time of Christ, the Sabbath should be employed in order to help one's brethren and one's community. And if, because of the constraints of the modern world, one needs to work on a Saturday or a Sunday, then one may keep the Sabbath on another day. Because the true Sabbath is neither Saturday nor Sunday. Examining the Old Testament law, upon the vernal equinox, the first day of spring, that was the first day of the year on the Hebrew calendar, upon the vernal equinox there was a Sabbath, and then every seven days there was a Sabbath, until the next vernal equinox. So this Sunday evening, this year, 2016, March 20th until the evening of the 21st may mark the first Sabbath for the next year. So for the rest of this year, the original Hebrew Sabbath would be on Mondays. But for next year, it may be on Tuesdays. And for the following year, on Wednesdays. Who can assert that Saturday 
is always the proper Sabbath day or Sunday. They are only kidding themselves as those things are the contrivances of men. But if one feels that he should keep Sabbath on either Saturday or Sunday, that is fine too. And I would not condemn him. I could not condemn him. In the modern world, very few Christians are able to keep the true and ancient Hebrew calendar and keep the Sabbaths and still keep a job and feed their families. Indeed. Paul must have foreseen this predicament, and he wrote in Romans chapter 14 that one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not not regard it. The Sabbaths, the new moon celebrations, and ordained feasts are a shadow of things to come, meaning that one day we shall indeed be keeping them in the spirit of Christ when Christ comes to rule over men. Next Paul speaks concerning what really should matter to us in this world. And if we numbered our own verses, the last clause of verse 17 would belong with verse 18 instead. And he says, Whereas the body is of the anointed, let no one find you unworthy of reward. And we'll stop right there, halfway through verse 18. Paul is not speaking of heavenly rewards here, but of earthly ones, in connection with feasts and Sabbaths and food and drink. This becomes evident in the verses which follow. The well-being of the individual Christian is more important than the manner in which he or she keeps the feasts and the Sabbaths. As Christ said in the Gospel, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man, and not man for the Sabbath, as the Pharisees treated it. Many identity Christians have written us and asked when they should keep Passover, or on what days they should keep a Sabbath, or even how they should keep them. I've seen some Christian identity pastors issue detailed instructions for keeping a Passover. I would say, to hell with that. That was for the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament that is not for the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ. We may be able to tell them that Passover is 14 days from the vernal equinox, but we certainly will not tell them that they must celebrate Passover on that day. We are not in the Levitical kingdom, but the kingdom of Christ. In today's world, most of us must work at our vocation on the day appointed by Scripture. And if we miss the exact date, are we unworthy of reward? Do we wait to celebrate a Passover until the year in which the 14th day from the vernal equinox falls on a Saturday or a Sunday? Because that is when our brethren have off from their jobs. That is pharisaical. 
the best advice we could give is this keep the feast when those with whom you desire to keep it have an opportunity to gather and in a manner which pleases everyone involved if you cannot afford lamb eat chicken and hamburgers but do not let anyone talk you into rituals and Levitical ordinances because salvation is not by rituals they are modern Judaizers salvation is not by legalism as we will see in the verses which follow we will repeat verse 18 for the beginning and this time finish it let no one find you unworthy of reward being willing with humiliation even in the worship of the messengers or perhaps of the angels the Greek word Tapinofrosune, that's a tongue twister, right? They all are. Is usually used in a good sense in the New Testament, where the King James Version often renders it as humility, and Liddell and Scott have only lowliness or humility for their definition of the word. To which the large ninth edition of their lexicon adds mean-spiritedness as it was used in a bad sense. Here it is evident that the word is used in a bad sense, but not necessarily in that same manner. Joseph Thayer in his own lexicon cites both Epictetus and Josephus in his wars for his definition where Thayer says that Josephus had used the word tepinofrosune in the sense of pusillanimity, and so both here and in verse 23 it is rendered as humiliation in the Christogenian New Testament pusillanimity that's a tongue twister too right that's actually the English word from which we get the word pussy somebody who is soft or has um effeminate qualities and easily submits himself and doesn't put up a fight. To understand what Paul means here by the messengers or angels, it is only fair to see where he speaks of them elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Indeed, I suppose Yahweh has appointed us of the last of the ambassadors destined to die seeing that we had become a spectacle to the society both to messengers or angels and to men likewise in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 speaking of why women should be modest Paul says for this reason a woman ought to have a sign of control upon the head for the sake of the messengers or the angels. When we discuss that verse in a presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, given here in December of 2014, we said the following, and I'm going to quote a 
an entire long paragraph. Paul's reference to the messengers or angels may seem to be obscure, but it should not be obscure at all. He already spoke in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of the demons who are the authors of idolatry. The epistle of Jude is probably the plainest New Testament resource which explains that the angels, which kept not their first estate, were dwelling among Christians and were spots in their feasts of charity, feeding themselves without fear. Jude also describes them as men who crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, quoting the King James Version. These are the progeny of those very devils who are the authors of idolatry, and they dwell among us even today, bound in chains of darkness as the non-Adamic races, who have been infiltrating Adamic society in order to corrupt it in every age. Peter described these same people in chapter 2 of his second epistle, where he said, But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. These, these individuals described by Peter and Jude must be the angels to whom Paul referred in this admonishment in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and also earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and also here in Colossians chapter 2. These angels, the descendants of the so-called fallen angels, they're the spots in our feast of charity, the Kenites and the Rephaim, and the other races of Genesis chapter 15, and all the other non-white races, and those who later intermingled with and identified as Canaanites and Edomites and others of the mixed races. We cannot imagine that the pious angels of God would want men to worship them at all. So they are not who Paul is talking about here. As the angel of the Revelation instructs the Apostle John, as it is described in Revelation chapter 22, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. 
Then he said to me, See thou, do it not. In other words, don't worship me. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. The angel refused to be worshipped. The pious angel refuses to be worshipped. Therefore, we can imagine that here Paul is indeed referring to, quote-unquote, fallen angels, those whom Jude had called the angels who kept not their first estate, the seed of those sinners of old who are described in Genesis chapters 3 and 6 and Revelation chapter 12, and by the apostle Peter, as well as by Jude. So we should be comfortable imagining that these angels of Colossians chapter 2 are those same demons, those men who were the authors of the pagan religions which Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the balance of verse 18, Paul continues to describe the false forms of worship which he refers to. And he says, stepping into things which one sees. Stepping into things which one sees. Heedlessly inflated by the mind of one's flesh. And I repeated the first part of that verse for a good reason. The first part of that clause, I'm sorry. The Codex Ephraimi Siri and the majority text have stepping into things which one has not seen, which accounts for the reading of this passage in the King James Version. The negative particle does not exist in the 3rd century papyrus, P46, in the Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinica, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Claromontanus, or Fririanus, all from the 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. We agree with the reading of the many earlier codices, as Paul must be talking about things seen, describing them as carnal, rather than things unseen, where the King James Version causes confusion. Likewise, Paul compared the things seen and unseen in Romans chapter 8, and again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he said, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So here, Paul admonishes men for stepping into temporal things, into things which one has seen, or things which one sees. And doing so, Paul seems to be referring to what we may call sacramentalism, or that reliance on works, which is fueled by the vain psychological need in weaker Christians to be involved in rituals and ceremonies as an assurance of one's salvation. And by these they are led astray. The performance of works 
as an assurance of one's salvation, heedlessly inflates the mind of one's flesh. If we allow ourselves to be judged in food and in drink, or in respect of feast or new moon, or of the Sabbaths, then we are subjecting ourselves to the messengers of those things which were being promoted by the Judaizers, and we worship them instead of Christ. We are depriving ourselves to be subject to ordinances, but not the ordinances of God, imagining ourselves to be unworthy of reward. That is because Christ himself is not going to judge men by those things. So why should we subject ourselves to the regulations of men? Paul strengthens the exhortation with an appeal to submit to Christ instead in verse 19. And not grasping the head if we want to seek the works of the hands, if we want to seek these worldly rituals and feel that we are given salvation through them, we are not grasping the head. And not grasping the head from whom the whole body, through the joints and bonds being supplied and brought together, increases with the increase of Yahweh. The Codex Claromontanus has, and not grasping Christ as the head. And the description of Christ as the head of the body politic is certainly what Paul is inferring here. Since the Christian Israelite has his salvation through Christ, and not through any works of his own, he should grasp onto the path which Christ outlined, and not seek his own salvation through his own doings, through abstinence from food or drink, or through the keeping of feasts and Sabbaths. And Paul says, If you have died with Christ from the elements of the society, why, as if alive in the society, are you subject to ordinances? The ancient children of Israel were to be ritualistically distinct from the other nations, and the rituals and ceremonial ordinances of the law, and the feasts and the Sabbaths were all designed to maintain that distinction. So, for instance, they could only eat meat slaughtered in a certain manner, or grain grown under certain conditions. The Judeans had not only endeavored to maintain these things, but layered many of their own interpretations and regulations on top of them. However, in Christ, all of these requirements found in the rituals and ceremonies and other ordinances of the law are removed, and Christians should not subject themselves to them once again. Paul continues in verse 21. One should not drink, I'm sorry, one should not hold, nor should one taste, nor should one touch. And the verbs here translated hold, which is hapto, and touch, which is figano, are synonyms sharing virtually all of their shades of meaning. 
Here, Paul is emulating the Pharisees, as well as certain of the ancient Greek philosophies, which demanded adherence to live in abstention from certain foods and other refreshments, as Paul elucidates in the passage which follows, in verse 22. Things which are all for corruption in their misuse, according to the commands and instructions of men. Paul is deriding those who would not hold, or who would not taste, or who would not touch, things which are all for corruption in their misuse, according to the commands and the instructions of men. Now I know that the King James has, which are all to perish with the using, and that's simply wrong, and I'm going to explain that. The Greek word, apokrasis, which is rendered as misuse in the, the Christogenian New Testament, but which is only using, the using in the King James Version, is not even listed in the Liddell and Scott Intermediate Greek-English Lexicon. Why? Because the intermediate Greek-English lexicon only covers the Greek language down to the time of Strabo. 25 AD, at the latest. In a large 9th edition, which is a much more recent publication, and which considers a much greater portion of the Greek language, all the way to the time of Procopius, perhaps, it is said that Plutarch, who was a few decades later than Paul, used this word, apokrasis, to express a getting rid of something. So this use of the word here by Paul is apparently the earliest literary example of this word. But it seems that if Paul merely meant to describe the use of something as most translations render this word, he would only have had to use the word crisis, because a crisis is a using. He would not have had to use the word apocrisis. For that reason, because it certainly seems to be correct within the context of Paul's statements here, when translating the Christogenian New Testament, we chose to follow Joseph Thayer's definition of the word apokrasis, where it is defined as abuse or misuse. This is substantiated, Thayer's definition is substantiated by the definition of the corresponding verb, apokreomahi, which Liddell and Scott define as to use to the full, and also to abuse or to misuse, and to use up or destroy. So if apokreomahi means to abuse or misuse, then apokresis really means to abuse or misuse. In his entry for apokresis, Thayer says the following, in part, Abuse, misuse, Colossians 2.22, 
Paul says this from the standpoint of the false teachers, the angels who want to be worshipped, who in any use of those things whatever saw an abuse, or in other words, a blameworthy use. That justifies the translation of the phrase in the Christogenia New Testament verse 23 things which are a statement indeed holding wisdom in submissive worship and humiliation and disregard of the body not in any esteem for satisfaction of the flesh by saying things which are a statement indeed Paul refers to the commands and instructions of men which hold the wisdom in submissive worship submitting to anything other than Christ which is a form of self-humiliation and by which one disregards the needs of one's body Paul then says that such things are not in any esteem for the satisfaction of the flesh because, as he says above in regard to those who would judge a man for food or drink or feast or Sabbaths, let no one find you unworthy of reward. Of course, wine would be a primary example of these things. As Paul said here, no one must judge you in food or drink. But there are other things to consider in this regard. There are many things which God has granted to us which are for corruption in their misuse, but which Christians should indeed be able to use properly. And by using those things properly or in moderation, one may have relaxation or relief from one's pain and one's ailments. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepts thy works. Likewise, in Psalm 104, speaking of Yahweh God, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man that he may bring forth food out of the earth, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. It seems that Paul addressed not only Judaizers or Pharisees here, but also the ascetics. Will we have rendered the Greek word Thrascia? Strong's number 1479, with the phrase submissive worship in verse 23. The King James Version has will worship instead. And will worship is also a valid translation. And in this context, it may even be better than our own rendering. There were Greek philosophies of Paul's time which embraced asceticism, the idea that abstinence from all worldly pleasures improved one's spiritual well-being.
In fact, the prevalent philosophy among learned Greeks at the time of Paul's writing was Stoicism. The Stoics thought it a lapse of judgment to display many emotions and promoted a self-discipline which went far beyond the Christian ideals of self-control. Hence the term ascetic comes from a Greek word which means training and seems to be what Paul was addressing in his references to will worship and worship with humiliation as we see it described here. Of course there are times for fasting but there are also times for feasting. As the scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 there is a time for every purpose under heaven including a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance and the Puritans probably missed that one where it also says of Yahweh God that he has made everything beautiful in his time also he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to end I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. While Christians should not live to fulfill the lusts of the flesh, there is nothing wrong with a beer or a glass of wine or two in order to help comfort the flesh because God has provided those things for our pleasure. We should tell no man when he needs to relax not to drink wine. We should tell no man when he needs to relieve his pain not to partake of the herbs of the field for that relief. A man is not going to convince us that he is a better Christian simply because he abstains from one thing or another and by trying to convince us of such a thing he is basically promoting the idea that he can attain a better salvation for himself by subjecting himself to his own will that is will worship but on the other hand if one is drunk or stoned then that is not moderation and such a man can of course attain a better salvation with abstinence but if he does not and chooses to remain drunken then he may expect to be rejected by his Christian fellows because all things are for corruption in their abuse but not in their use. If the laws of Yahweh our God do not forbid men of something, neither should we forbid men of that thing, and neither should we endorse those who would forbid men of such things. There is danger in profligacy, there is no doubt, but salvation is not by legalism, nor is it found in abstinence. 
Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Yahweh willing, we shall return next Friday with Colossians chapter 3. Tomorrow night, Christian Expectations. Thank you.